Please be aware that True Crime by the Book may discuss topics, share opinions, and use language that could be disturbing or offensive to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Tidings and salutations, bibliophages. Thank you for joining me on True Crime by the Book, where every other Tuesday we meet up to talk real crime, one page at a time. I'm your host, Tasha Pierce. And first of all today, I'd like to thank Hip Young Guy and Jen Brad 1211 for their five-star reviews. They are my first two, so y'all, I'm really excited. Yay! <laughs> and... If you'd like to help the podcast, please head over to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, anywhere, and drop a review. I would certainly appreciate it. Now, today we will be discussing Charmer, the true story of a ladies' man and his victims by Jack Olson. It was narrated by Kevin Pierce, no relation, uh, and he has teamed up with Olson on many of his works. His narration lends the right mix of charm, gravity, and sincerity to the words on the page. Now, Jack Olson is an award-winning author of 33 books published in 15 countries and 11 languages. A former Time Bureau chief, Olson wrote for Vanity Fair, People, uh, Paris Match, Reader's Digest, Playboy, Life, Sports Illustrated, Fortune, New York Times Book Review, and others. His magazine journalism appeared in 13 anthologies. Olson's journalism has earned the National Headlines Award, Chicago Newspaper Guild's Page One Award, uh, commendations from Columbia and Indiana Universities, the Washington State Governor's Award, the Scripps Howard Award, and other honors. He was listed in Who's Who in America since 1968 and in Who's Who in the World since 1987. The Philadelphia Inquirer described him as an American treasure. Olson has been described as the dean of true crime authors by the Washington Post and the New York Daily News, and the master of true crime by the Detroit Free Press and Newsday. Publisher Weekly called him the best true crime writer around. His studies of crime are required reading in university criminology courses and have been cited in the New York Times Notable Books of the Year. In a page one review, the Times described his work as a genuine contribution to criminology and journalism alike. Needless to say, there will be more of his books featured here on the podcast. Before we get deep into the story of uh, Charmer, the Goodreads synopsis goes like this. In a tree-lined community near Seattle, young women and girls were drawn to George Russell Jr. They crowned him cool, trusted him as their protector, and took him to their hearts. And why not? An articulate young African-American he was a cheerful companion, flashy dancer, and urban sophisticate. He had good looks, professional parents, rich friends, and a beguiling style and smile. George was a local favorite. 
then bodies started turning up. In a nightclub parking lot, in a quiet, out-of-the-way house, and in a tastefully decorated apartment. The victims, attractive young females, had been bludgeoned to death, violated sexually, then outrageously posed like gallery sculptures. Seasoned investigators were sickened by the cold brutality. A prosecutor described the bodies as the killer's collected works of art. No one suspected George Russell. He offered the police helpful clues and even put the finger on a pal. When frustrated detectives ran out of leads, they came close to giving up on the case. In this riveting examination into the mind and life of a vicious killer and his deceptively charming persona, Jack Olson tracks Russell's 30-year psychological decline, which culminated in a shocking killing spree. This week, we're visiting Mercer Island. It's situated between Seattle and Bellevue in Washington State. It was described as upper suburbia, a place where executives and professionals put down roots. A place where poverty means driving last year's Mercedes. Six miles of land that was home to around 20,000 people. Unbeknownst to Mercer Island, a career criminal would soon grip the community and shake it to its core. Now, when I got into this book, I didn't know much about George Walterfield Russell Jr. Um, I've been a, a fan of true crime since I was 11 years old when Alton Coleman held my hometown, Gary, Indiana, hostage in the summer of 84. In Charmer, we meet Russell as a boy about the same age as I was when I learned that monsters live amongst us. He was wise beyond his years. Uh, he would talk to anyone. Uh, his conversation was so mature that it was easy to forget you were talking to a child. He was cautious as well. He'd get a person to talk and talk without disclosing much about himself. He was guarded that way. Uh, his family was among only a handful of blacks who lived on Mercer Island he lived with his mom, Joyce, a college professor, his stepfather, Wanzel, a dentist, and his baby sister. From the outer appearance, he seemed to have an ideal home life. But upon further investigation, we soon learned that George was a neglected and lonely boy. He never had any real close friends as a youth. He was more like an accessory. Kind of like those TV shows that have a white ensemble cast and one black guy on the periphery of the group. George was always on the periphery. In his family, he watched his mom and stepdad fawn over Erica, his sister. He didn't receive that type of attention from either of them. His stepfather often went out of his way to point out that George was not his son. At school, he wasn't popular. He was just there. And because he was so often left to his own devices, George started to get into mischief. And this wasn't cute Dennis the Menace type stuff, though. He was prone to lie about anything, often exaggerating the type of family life he thought he deserved. In 1970, he and two other 12-year-olds broke into a neighbor's home and made toast. <laughs> 
Okay, I know that sounds a little funny. I couldn't imagine coming home and actually finding the three bears in my kitchen eating toast. This could easily be mistaken as a prank, but in reality, it was premonitions of things to come. That same year, he also began peeking into people's homes. He was caught by police, and they decided to punish him by having him do odd jobs at the police station. George soon became fascinated with law enforcement. He was interested in all aspects of fighting crime and the people who dedicated their lives to doing it. The Mercer Island police also liked having George around and they hoped by feeding his curiosity, they could keep him out of trouble. He became a fixture around the station, answering phones, being a gopher and studying the intricacies of being an officer. He even began telling people that he wanted to be a cop when he grew up. He was a charming and likable kid. He just needed a little supervision. Unfortunately, George's mom and stepfather began experiencing relationship problems and she decided to leave the home they shared. I was baffled when it was revealed that she took the child that she shared with her husband, but left George behind. And of course, it was a you take him. No, you take him. No, you take him type of deal. Of course, George said she gave him the option to go with her, but he refused. History shows that his mom likely abandoned him. She had pawned him off on various relatives while she went to college. Uh, He stayed with a litany of relatives, aunts, grandmothers, basically anyone who would have him. This had to make George feel alone in the world, being shipped from one household to the next. After hearing how his mother so callously left him with a man who never wanted him, I almost felt sorry for him. But it seems that George didn't want sympathy. He had his mind set on something else entirely. Now, I feel like I say this every week, but I can't cover the entirety of this book in just 30 minutes. This will end up being a two-part episode. However, let's fast forward to an adult George. But it's important to note that he committed plenty of petty crimes between high school and adulthood. Stealing from friends, breaking into lockers, going to places that are just pretty much off limits to children. He did an awful lot of stuff in those high school years. And he was able to escape those brushes with the law with a slap on the wrist. A week or two in jail, maybe a month here and there, uh, he wouldn't serve long. And then he'd be back on the street looking for new trouble to get into. He was arrested once. And when he thought that his crime could have potentially had him looking at a lengthy prison sentence, he escaped from the jail. Now, this was an embarrassing situation for the Mercer Island police. There was an all-out manhunt for George. Dogs, helicopters, a mini task force. It was incredible that the Mercer Island police were having extreme difficulty locating a black fugitive on a white island. But that was the case. And he was on the run for two weeks. And when George was finally captured, he told one officer that he wasn't caught. He pretty much gave up. He could never admit that he was wrong. He could never be fooled. Now, this little adventure was George's first felony charge, 
and he spent 10 months on ice. So, so far we've learned that George is a liar. He was abandoned as a child and was neglected. He also shared a number of other traits that could be an indicator of his personality type. Those are a lack of guilt, empathy, and deep emotional attachments to others, narcissism and superficial charm, and dishonesty, manipulative, manipulativeness, and reckless risk-taking. According to the Society for the Scientific Study of Psychopathy, a person with all of those traits is likely to have antisocial personality disorder, also known as being a psychopath. So upon release, George went back to Mercer Island. He was as secretive and manipulative as ever, kind of a, a street psychologist. He knew who to pursue and who to avoid, who to steal from and who he shouldn't cross. He kept different groups of friends and they remained separate. Like he had multiple lives in a way. He could never stay out of trouble, but he would work off smaller transgressions by flipping on local drug dealers. He even had convinced one of his groups of acquaintances that he couldn't be arrested because he worked with the cops. George was finding himself increasingly alone in this period. He burned bridges with his old school friends by stealing from them, his street friends by turning full-time snitch, and the community at large by being a known petty criminal. The last resort on Mercer Island was the younger crowd. This is who he had to latch himself onto. And this is when 28-year-old George began running around with a group of girls who were looking forward to entering the 10th grade. Now, everybody knows this type of guy. He's the only one old enough to buy beer. He brings the weed. He's the life of the party. Those guys who never grow up like a big fish in a small pond type. A piece of shit. Well, he began to hang out at the homes of these young girls, sneaking in late and tipping out early. He would talk with them, really act like he cared. He asked questions and gave advice. He knew all the kids in their circle and could gossip with them all night. They would hug and cuddle in bed together, but nothing sexual ever happened. Until, until one of the girls developed a crush on George. Uh, she began to display the classic signs of a 14-year-old being jealous and lovesick. It wasn't obvious to all the other kids, but George recognized it because he's old and pervy as hell. <laughs> then he began to work on grooming this kid into a long-term sexual relationship. Now, she had recently given her life to God, so that was the hook that George used to lure her in. And I'll save you the lurid details of his repeated sexual abuses of her. And in usual George fashion, he eventually was caught with a stolen TV and stolen scratch-off lottery tickets because he's human garbage. <laughs> that landed him a 30-day stay in jail. His behavior while there extended his stay for seven months. And while he was locked up, the young lady discovered that she was pregnant. She had just turned 15 four days earlier. 
She knew there was no way she could properly care for this baby, so she used $130 of her own babysitting earnings to have an abortion. Even though she and George remained in contact through letters and occasional phone calls, his spell was beginning to fade. She realized that it really was weird that this adult man was dating her, and she wanted to experience dating someone her own age, who could be her boyfriend all the time, not just late at night. She finally recognized George for the loser he was. And I think at this point in the story, I was so excited for her that I pumped my fist. I mean, it's it's unfortunate that she went through all of that, but she did come out on the other side. And on May 18th, 1987, George got out of jail. She saw him a few times, but her behavior was distant. Eventually, he got the hint and exited her life. Now, back on the streets of Mercer Island, George had to exist. He was sleeping parked cars, warehouses, people's garages. Five weeks after he got out, he was squatting in a warehouse. The owner called police and George spent five days in jail. He was trespassed from most of the businesses in the area, uh, Denny's for stealing tips, gas stations for, you know, scratch offs and anything he could pretty much pick up and take out uh, and other stores in the area. He was essentially ostracized. He still kept a group of younger friends who he could manipulate into allowing him crash at their places until they kicked him out, usually for stealing. He couch surfed until his penchant for borrowing things reared its head, then out he went. He didn't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of. So he picked up his bag and moved on to Bellevue. In Bellevue, he was known to frequent a night spot called the Black Angus. He would post up at a booth close to the DJ, buy drinks and dance the night away. He continued to keep details about his life very secret uh, as he got to know the other regulars in the establishment. Now, George was a reasonably attractive guy and he would flirt and be flirted with. He had absolutely no love for black girls, though. Uh, He would hardly interact with any black women, any black people, period. But especially black women. And it's not hard to imagine why. I tend to think they reminded him too much of his mother. And most of the time he kept his encounters with the women he met at Black Angus confined to the nightclub. And then he met a young lady named Mindy Charlie. Mindy was a young divorcee. She married her high school sweetheart at 17 years old, and by the time she was 20, he had up and left. And one year later, in 1988, she was involved with an, quote, aspiring actor named Chris, who turned out to be a jealous, abusive, and an alcoholic. And after a huge blow up on Christmas Eve, he destroyed her six-foot aluminum Christmas tree. She finally had had it with him. You can be an asshole all year round, but you don't ruin Christmas. Now, she bought him a ticket to L.A. and sent him packing. And that relationship in total costed her $5,000. 
Then in the summer of 1989, she met George in the Black Angus. This pretty, naive, and vulnerable girl was just his type. Now that street psychologist and George picked up on the unconscious signals that Mindy was sending. And before long, he had effectively swept her off her feet. They started off dating. Before long, he was spending nights cooking dinner, making breakfast in bed. Uh, He would surprise her with gifts and he kept her home spotless. She was so taken, she didn't even realize when George had moved in. But he paid his portion of the rent on time, for a time. Uh, For a time, he was a perfect boyfriend until he wasn't. That facade couldn't last forever. Before she knew what happened, he had morphed into a controlling, manipulative monster. He was emotionally abusive, secretive, and selfish. George had picked up on her insecurities and weaponized them against her. There was a constant hot and cold with him. He would ignore her for days on end and then suddenly start communicating again in a classic love bomb. He would borrow her car for hours on end, leaving her to wonder where he was. He told her that he was an undercover narcotics officer, but he never had money. Uh, She would occasionally find trinkets, jewelry, and whatnot around her apartment, and he would snatch it up and say, that's police evidence. He choked her after one argument, punched her after another. She was finally seeing him for who he truly was. This George was the one who could strong-arm children out of their possessions, who could steal from the people he called friends, and who would ruin another Christmas for Mindy. That's right. Christmas was Mindy's favorite holiday. She confided in him the terrible things that Chris the ex had done on Christmas 1988. And this piece of crap did the exact same thing to her for Christmas 1989. When she dared question him, he picked up her aluminum Christmas tree and speared it at her. After the shock wore off, Mindy sat in a heap and began to pick up the shattered pieces. You know, talking about this because she was so classically abused. While scripting this, I witnessed an act of domestic violence. I heard yells, so I looked up, and this young man had like tackled a young lady and began pummeling her like she was an opposing quarterback. And I didn't have my phone on the balcony with me, but I leaped up and I said, Hey! And he saw me and he ran. Now, this young lady was one of the 24 people per minute who are victims of domestic violence in the United States. That being said, I've been one of the 24 myself. Please, please realize that you are worth so much more than this kind of treatment. And if you've been a victim of domestic abuse and are in need of help, please call the National National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or visit hotline.org, and that's here in the States. Please, 
please hear me on how serious I am about that. Because like I said, one day, maybe I'll tell, share my story of uh, being a domestic abuse survivor, but nobody deserves to be treated the way this young lady that I witnessed being treated uh, poorly and the way Mindy was treated with the emotional and physical abuse. Now, there had been a rash of burglaries in Mindy's neighborhood. The perpetrator broke in and stole small items of little value. The Mercer Island police noticed that the burglaries on the island had slowed down tremendously. They also knew that George would occasionally slip in and commit a crime just to keep them on their toes. See, George really wasn't in it for the spoils. He was in it for the sport. The feeling that he could enter someone's home while they were sleeping, rummage through their belongings, and essentially hold their lives in his hands. He could kill them while they slept. He wondered if his victims ever thought about that. It was through his own benevolence that they were still alive. Others wouldn't be so lucky. I believe I'm going to stop here with Jack Olson's The Charmer, but fear not. There will be a second episode to conclude this story. And in fact, the second episode will be available next week, Tuesday. So I hope you all uh, join me for part two. So instead of it going every other week, I will have an episode next week and the week after that so you're getting quite a bit of true crime by the book but i think i'm ready to to uh give you a little bit more especially because this is a two-part episode nobody wants to wait two weeks for the second part and that's fine so as long as you join me for part two and bring along a friend everything is everything now if you have feedback comments or book suggestions i'll direct you to my email that's tc by tb at gmail.com. Please subscribe to True Crime by the Book on Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and many other podcatchers. Uh, I would also appreciate ratings and reviews on your platform of choice. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening and hasta uh, uh, until next week. Later, bookworms. Ha, ha, ha.